Our next speaker is Dr. Daniel Horsley. Daniel researches and teaches maths at Monash. He finds the extent of his own ignorance both hilarious and exciting. He's been known to run distance in, in excess of what most people consider sensible. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel. Okay, so I'd like to tell you a bit tonight about the mathematician Georg Cantor, but I'd like to begin with some things that were said about him and about his work. So, at the time when Cantor was working, um, Henri Poincaré described Cantor's ideas as a grave disease and Leopold Kronecker called Cantor a scientific charlatan, a renegade, and a corrupter of youth. <laughs> Years later, things would be quite different. David Hilbert would say that Cantor's work was one of the supreme achievements of purely intellectual human activity. And Bertrand Russell would describe Cantor as one of the greatest intellects of the 19th century. And I should point out that the names attached to these quotes amongst mathematicians are not obscure names. You know, um, Poincaré and Kronecker and Hilbert and Russell are to mathematics what Tupac and Biggie and Jay-Z and Kanye are to hip-hop perhaps with less heavy jewellery, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> but you might be asking, how did Cantor's work, work that would come to be considered as brilliant, manage to upset his contemporaries so much? I mean, it's not too difficult to give a political speech which really makes people angry. But how do you piss them off with a theorem or an equation? Well, I'll get to that, but let me tell you a little bit about Cantor's life first. So, Georg Cantor was born in St. Petersburg in 1845, but for the sake of his father's health, the family moved to Germany when he was just 11. And he studied in school at Darmstadt and was instantly recognised as a great mathematical talent. So eventually, with money left to him by his father, his father had since died, he went to do his doctorate in mathematics at University of Berlin. And University of Berlin at the time is one of the mathematical centres of the universe. Um, he's taught by some of the greatest mathematicians of the, the age, including Kummer and Weierstrass and Kronecker. Now, Kronecker's a name we've heard before. He's going to go on to call Cantor a corrupter of youth. Um, I'm dropping a lot of names I know so far in this talk. There are really only two you need to remember. One is Cantor, he's our hero. Two is Kronecker he's going to turn into something of a villain. Um, if you need a mnemonic to help you here, I suggest you remember that Kronecker was a problem for Cantor that only became 
Kronika and Kronika. <laughs> I, uh, I, I say that only for the sake of your memory, of course. Um, okay. So, Cantor gets his doctorate at age 22, and he fairly soon gets a position at University of Halle. Um, now, Halle is a much less prestigious university than Berlin, of course. And from this time up until age 29, he rises through the ranks at Halle, and he does work which is brilliant, but perhaps not, you know, laboratory brilliant. Um, but all this changes where, in his 29th year. His 29th year is a really big one for Cantor. So one thing that happens is he gets married to Vali Gutman. Um, their honeymoon is in the Hartz Mountains. And um, like a lot of newlyweds, Cantor spends a lot of it in his room. Unlike a lot of newlyweds, what he's doing there is discussing mathematics with his friend and colleague, Richard Dedekind, who also happened to be in the area at the time. <laughs> but I, I should say, in fairness, he and Valley went on to have two sons and four daughters, so they clearly found some time to be alone eventually. <laughs> Um, but whether it's that he's inspired by wedded bliss or by his discussions with Dedekind or both, it's now that he begins to do the work that will eventually make him famous, but in the short term, mostly makes him infamous. So what is this work? Well. Cantor's been looking at various problems that involve infinite collections of things. And he makes this fateful decision that he's going to start investigating the nature of infinity itself. So let me pause and ask you something. Um, I don't know if you can see, but down here is a bit of prop comedy. I have a pile of Freddo frogs and a pile of caramello koalas. How could I convince myself that I have the same number of each? Well, a lot of people are probably thinking I could count them. I have a confession to make. I'm not very good at counting. Um, don't tell Monash if you don't mind. Um, there's, there's still a surprising amount of prejudice against mathematicians who, who can't count. Is there another way? Is there another way that I could convince myself I have the same number? Pair them up, exactly. So if this isn't intuitive to you, think about a waiter coming off her shift, say. She might well be able to tell you that she laid out the same number of soup bowls and soup spoons in that shift. But that's not because she counted them. She paired them up one to one. And if I could pair Freddo's with Caramello's up one-to-one, -one, then I'd have shown those two piles had the same number of things in them. So, mathematicians in Cantor's day basically thought there were two sorts of collections of things. You had finite collections of things, like my collection of Freddo's there. Those you could count, you could tell if two had the same number by counting. Then, 
you had infinite collections of things, which you can't count, you'd be going on forever. And so they were just infinite, nothing more to say about them. And Cantor's first huge realisation is that while you can't count infinite collections, what you can do is extend this idea of pairing up to determine if two infinite collections have the same number of things in them. And he takes this idea and he runs with it and he proves some amazing things. So he proves that if you take all the numbers that you can write as fractions, so things like 3 halves, 15 sixteenths, that sort of thing, you can pair those up one to one with just the counting numbers. So just with one, two, three, squid, chutney. Um, sorry, I said I wasn't very good at counting. But um, no, just with, the, just with the counting numbers. And he also shows that if you take all the numbers, all the weird numbers, that you can't write as fractions. So we're now talking about things like the square root of two and pi and that sort of thing. You can't pair them up with the counting numbers. There's just too many of those weird numbers. And so straight away, he's actually shown that there are two different sizes of infinity. And he goes on to show that there's many more than two different sizes of infinity. There are infinitely many different sizes of infinity. And in doing so, he blows the minds of most of the greatest mathematicians of his generation. And one of the minds he blows belongs to Kronecker. Kronecker just hates this stuff. He thinks it is too weird and esoteric to possibly be true. And Kronecker, remember, is a big shot, you know, a very influential mathematician. And he starts to use this influence against Cantor and against his ideas. So Kronecker really does believe that by promoting these meaningless ideas, Cantor is acting as a renegade and as a corrupter of youth. And he's not shy about saying so. And um, more than this, um, he, Kronecker, discourages editors of journals from publishing Cantor's papers. Perhaps most significantly, Cantor is desperate to get a job back at University of Berlin at the center of the mathematical universe where Kronecker works. And Kronecker makes it very clear to the university authorities that the university is not big enough for both he and Cantor. And so throughout Cantor's 30s, he continues to do this amazing work on the infinite, work that will come to be seen as brilliant. But whether it's because of Kronecker's influence or because his ideas are just so revolutionary, they don't gain much acceptance at the time. And the criticism weighs on Cantor's mind. 
when he's 39, he suffers a breakdown. Um, nowadays, he would almost certainly have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And to give you some idea of his state of mind at this period, we know he wrote a mathematical friend over 50 letters in this year. Every one of those letters mentioned Kronika. So from this point onwards, Cantor's life will be punctuated by a series of these breakdowns and accompanying stays in sanatoriums. Um, there are some bright spots in his periods of recuperation. He still does some excellent, excellent mathematics, although by and large his work never quite reaches its previous stellar heights. Um, and things keep going downhill for him. In 1899, his youngest son, Rudolf, dies quite suddenly, and this seems to strip him of much of his enthusiasm for doing mathematics, ironically, just at a time when his ideas were first starting to get that widespread acceptance that he'd always craved. Um, he retires, the First World War comes, and during it, he and his family are reduced to poverty, and he eventually dies in 1918 in a sanatorium in which he'd spent the last year of his life. So that sort of sounds like a sad end to my story, but it's not quite the end. Let me tell you why Cantor is something of a hero of mine. So basically, two reasons. So the first is as you might have guessed from everything I said, Cantor's ideas eventually won the battle. So out of all the controversy that Cantor stirred up, mathematicians eventually wound up with a much better idea of the foundations that mathematics is built on and with a general framework um, based on Cantor's ideas that virtually all modern mathematicians are happy to work in. But secondly, more importantly, Cantor's big idea won the war. So throughout Cantor's writing, there's this repeated theme that if your ideas are interesting and if they are internally consistent, that should be enough. No one should get to dismiss them just because they don't like them or because they think they're too weird. And I think Cantor's greatest triumph is that that's a sentiment that is universally accepted by mathematicians today. Cantor wrote that the essence of mathematics is its freedom. And if you ask me to sum up in a single sentence what it is I love about maths, I couldn't do any better than that. Thanks.